ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. With yields at historic lows, investors will need to seek alternatives to the traditional approaches. That's where the NASDAQ Dorsey Wright target distribution approach can help. Using a broadly diversified allocation to U.S. equities, bonds, and non-traditional investments, the strategy targets a consistent 7% annualized distribution while preserving principal and without reaching for yield. Learn more at strategysharesetfs.com. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database, who they recently hosted an investor symposium alongside Investopedia. This had a fantastic lineup of speakers, but one of the things they did was actually poll attendees on a variety of ETF and market-related topics. There were thousands of attendees. They had a great turnout. And so we are going to discuss the results of those polls right here on the podcast this week. Now, I'll tell you, I've had an opportunity to take a look at the results here. There are some pretty interesting takeaways. These poll topics covered everything from market sentiment to where investors think the best returns will be moving forward, uh, crypto ETFs, ESG ETFs. There's a lot here. So Tom and I will bat those around. And then if we have time, ETF Trends also just released their latest survey of financial advisor attitudes towards crypto assets. They put this together in conjunction with Bitwise Investments. So uh, we'll try to touch on that as well. I'll then be joined by Rich Powers, head of ETF and index product management at Vanguard. Of course, Vanguard is the country's second largest ETF issuer. And actually, they were the uh, leader last year in terms of new money into their ETFs. I'm looking forward to this. Rich is always excellent discussing the bigger picture around what's going on in ETFs. So we'll talk Vanguard ETF flows, uh, bond ETFs, ETF fees, among other topics. And then I also want to get Rich's take on this article from MarketWatch last week that caused some buzz. This had to do with the SEC apparently now targeting index providers. I guess they're looking into whether index providers hold too much power and potential systemic risks posed by indexing. So I'm very interested in hearing Rich's take on that as well. And then to close this week, the ETF nerds out there will uh, definitely enjoy this one. I'll be joined by Aisha Hunt, founder of Kelly Hunt PLLC, who's going to give us a behind-the-scenes look at the legal and regulatory side of ETFs. And that will include hearing her take on topics like 
Bitcoin ETFs and mutual fund to ETF conversions. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Nate. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Good. How's how's the weekend? I think you had a, a pretty eventful Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> your 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 Chiefs had a heck of a football game there. Are you still riding a high? Oh man, I honestly think that was the best NFL game that I've ever seen. And I have watched a lot of football in my years. I don't know that anything will ever top that. But yeah, the city's absolutely on cloud nine. Uh, kind of the funny thing is. I'm actually a college basketball uh, fan as well, a diehard Kansas Jayhawk fan. And last night, hoping to go to bed early, what happens? Well, they're playing, I think, number 13, Texas Tech, and the thing goes to double overtime. So after being up late on Sunday night, hoping to get to bed early last night, it was another uh, late night, but Kansas pulled it out. So there's been uh, some some you know very uh, exciting and on-the-edge-of-your-seat moments uh, around sports here in Kansas City. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we, we, we've got some great stuff to get into, Nate, but where, where do you shake out on the overtime rule that, you know, that was such an amazing back and forth, especially in the fourth quarter? And then Josh Allen doesn't get an opportunity to get back on the field. That's like, it's like dollar cost averaging and being exceptionally disciplined all throughout your investing career. Great asset allocation. And, and then you just don't get to reap the benefits of, of at least a shot at, at putting some of that, uh, you know, hard, hard work to, uh, an effort into seeing to reap the rewards. Where do you shake out on not getting that other possession? Yeah, you know, obviously there's a lot of debate on this nationally. I'm, I always come back. I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a man of fairness, and I would like to see both teams possess the ball in overtime. That said, the Bills had a chance to stop the Chiefs, and they, and they couldn't do it. So it wasn't like the Chiefs got the ball at the, uh, the, the Bills 20 and had a score. They had to drive the length of the field, and the defense couldn't, couldn't stop them. I mean, football is a team sport, right? You have offense, defense, and special teams. So the other thing I'll add, and, and maybe I'm a little bit jaded just as a, a Kansas City Chiefs fan, is back in 2019, the exact same thing happened uh, to Kansas City. They were on the other side of the coin. They lost to Tom Brady and the Patriots. And so I do think that over time that, that stuff tends to even out. But uh, no question. I mean, I think if you're a fan watching both of those quarterbacks, you would like to see both of them have an opportunity to uh, win the game and and or the defense to stop them. So it was just an unbelievable weekend. I don't know that that will ever be topped. Uh, hopefully the games next week are, are good and we get a good Super Bowl. But I just think uh, everything's going to be anticlimactic from here. Uh, so Yeah, no, no doubt. So, so look, a couple of weeks ago, uh, ETF Trends and ETF Database hosted this investor symposium alongside Investopedia, and you did have a, a, a great lineup of speakers. Of course, ETF Trends, Tom Lydon, Investopedia's Caleb Silver, uh, Josh Brown over at Ritz, Ritholtz, who, by the way, will be on the podcast next week, uh, Bloomberg's Al, uh, Eric Balchunas, right, friend of the podcast, Valkyrie's Leah Wald, CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth. I could go on, but as part of that, Attendees were polled on a variety of ETF and market-related topics. And as you know, I absolutely love this stuff. I just love 
getting a window into how investors are thinking about everything right now. Uh, but before we get to the results, do you want to just quickly uh, set the scene just in terms of the event itself and, and sort of the profile of who attended this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're right, Nate. We had a, a star-studded lineup of speakers and panelists, and, and it moved along. It was a 90-minute session, but it had a real pace to it. We covered a lot of ground. And when you include all of the on-demand registrants and, and attendees, we had over 8,500 investors, and they were investors of all types. So the breakdown was about 68% individual uh, 24% were advisors, you know, one of the channels of advisors, and then 8% would be best categorized as institutional investors. When you add up all of the assets that were on on the symposium, made, it was over $3 trillion was represented there. So it was a big, pretty broad swath of the market, and we, were, we did it in a way that was, was highly engaging. And as you know, um, we really like like to have our finger on the pulse of how investors are, are thinking and specifically the advisor community through a couple of means. One is implicit data. Where on ETF trends and ETF database are they going? What are they interacting with? What tickers are they researching? What types of themes are they drilling into and how are those themes changing over time? And then the other, you know, that we're going to drill into this today, the other way that we want to keep our finger on that pulse is explicitly data. And, and that's data where we're asking advisors, investors, and in this case, even institutional investors, how they're feeling about the markets, how they're positioning for 2022, and then that, giving them a, a suite of questions to answer those types of questions. So, um, you know, it, it was it was fascinating. I think there's some results that people look at and go, that makes a lot of sense. And then there's some other ones that will make you go, hmm, a little bit more as we as we go into 22. I would note, Nate, this, this event took place on January 5th. And as we know, we live in a very dynamic world of the financial markets. And, and even, you know, three weeks later, some things have changed. Some have stayed the same, but a little bit of downside volatility, uh, you know, since, since, you know, some of the polling data was taken. But, but with that, you know, would be, would be happy to dive in. Yeah, let's do this. Let's start with some of the broader market-related topics, and then we can hit on a few of the ETF topics. And as I mentioned, I do have the uh, poll results in hand, but I'm going to let you go through all of these. So I'll tee up the questions, and then you can offer up the results here. So the first question was, what do you think U.S. stock market returns will be over the next 12 months? And I'll be honest, Tom, I was uh, surprised at the results here, much more bullish than I was expecting. Yeah, well, well, they were, Nate. So only 4.2% of folks said that the markets would be down. And then the rest, the balance said they would be either be, or sorry, sorry, 76% um, of the folks said that they would be uh, in positive territory. And 24% and said that they would be in, in negative territory. 7% said that they would be flat. And, and if you look at this, Nate, and you pull up the lens a little bit, I understand that we've talked about a lot of the, you know, the headwinds that the market has right now, valuation for sure, inflation, rising rates, all these things that we'll get into in some of the, the earlier or the later polling questions. But since 1980, if you look at how many down years they've been, it's, a, it's almost in line with what our group said here. So about 14% of the group said that it would be negative. And since 1980, out of those 42 years, 16% of those years have been negative. So I think when, when you can look at it one of two ways, where are we at this point in time? And then where does this look from a sort of normalized distribution of return? And I think that where you're kind of headed is, is there's a lot of reasons why this bullishness 
you know, is, is a, is a you know, continuation of some of the great returns that we've had over the last you know, 10 years, especially in the U.S. equity market. And there's a lot of reasons for investors to be somewhat cautious right now. So you're right. They did view generally quite bullish as it relates to where the U.S. stock market will be in the next 12 months. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, well, as you say, you have 80% saying the market would either be flat or up and 43% saying up more than 5%. I mean, that, that's obviously a fairly bullish uh, outlook, I think, especially coming off a year when the S&P 500 was up, uh, what, 28%. Now, I, I do wonder what that polling would look like if we did it today, right? Maybe things are a little bit different. But, you know, my my just quick take on that, Tom, is that really investors have had no reason to be bearish. And we, we can talk a little bit about the Fed, but I, I think until the Fed genuinely shows that they are going to uh, pivot here and get much more hawkish, it's tough for investors to be anything other than optimistic looking forward. Now, I think if you take a much longer term view, certainly I would expect whatever, 80 percent plus to have a long term bullish view. But really, we're talking just over the next 12 months here. I, I, it just surprised me. Yeah, well, no, absolutely, Nate. And then if you go to the far end of the, the bullish spectrum here, you know, almost 11% are saying that it's going to be, uh, you know, on the backs of a really strong performance in 2021. 11% said the market was going to be up more than 10% again this year. And so there's certainly an element of folks that are, are seeing that there there's more return to be had in the U.S. equity market, whether how that plays out, you know, like you say, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Now, in terms of headwinds, the next question was asking about the various concerns that could impact investment performance over the next 12 months. I, I would say these results weren't nearly as surprising to me. Do you want to go through these? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we phrased the question, Nate, are you concerned about any of the following impacting the performance of your investments over the next 12 months? And people could choose multiple answers within the suite of uh, potential answers that they could pick from. So the number one concern was inflation. 73.4% of the respondents chose that as a concern for them. Number two, rising interest rates, over 60%, 60.4% chose that response. Supply chain disruptions, 52.2%. You know, there's a lot of headline discussion about that. And then also a lot of real world impact that that's having on people in their day-to-day -day life. So certainly top of mind for investors there. And then another one that is, is, you know, inescapable over the last two years, going back you know, to March 2020, um, you know, the COVID-19 variant, you know, or a new variant or Omicron or, or some, um, you know, COVID-19 impact, over 41% of respondents said that was part of their worry. And, and so, you know, Nate, uh, we, we had a host of other things, including, you know, labor shortages, climate change, you know, which had less engagement, more government spending, 30% of respondents chose that. But, you know, those those four are certainly been themes of, of the wall of worry that investors have continued to climb um, over the last, you know, 20 to 22 months. Uh, what, what was your take on this? And you said, you know, it's, it's sort of in line with what we've been talking about for quite a while. Um, I think where this really plays in is in some of the other answers and how investors are going to position based on these being um, areas of concern. Yeah, I mean, this one, yeah, this made perfect sense to me. And, and by the way, obviously, respondents to this question could choose more than one answer uh, if you start adding up those percentages. But it's it's all about inflation and rising rates. I think one of the interesting dynamics here is that 
many investors have never experienced a true inflationary environment before, right? A decent chunk of advisors and investors, they simply weren't putting money to work back in the early 1980s when we last saw this kind of inflation. So this is going to be a new experience. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, in, investors handle this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so Nate, maybe just to, to keep things moving along, I know that you know we wanted to touch on where investors were thinking about how they're positioning based on these things for 2022, specifically where returns are going to be and then what their areas of concern are. So we asked that group as well, where will you see the best returns in 2022? So 52% of respondents said U.S. equities, 23.5% uh, emerging market equities, 16.4% said developed market equities, and nearly 8%, 7.9% said China. So 52% uh, U.S. equities, 48% non-U.S. equities. You now, we've had experienced a tremendous uh, you know, bull run here in the last 10 years in the U.S. market. And so there's a bit of a, a, a splitting here where 50% of folks or so feel that the U.S. equity market is going to continue that performance that it's had for such a long period of time. Whereas 48% are looking to other markets, um, and, and like I said, we broke them down in, into those different component parts, but they're looking outside of the, the U.S. borders for return, for the best returns in 2022, which I would add really quickly, Nate, before you layer in any commentary that you might have here, is that we've actually seen a little bit of this in the advisor community, in the behavioral data of where they're doing their research in the fourth quarter of 2021. We saw a spike in international emerging and developed markets as well as China. So certainly people are looking at the U.S. market going, oh, the valuations and, and the run that it's had over this period of time. Are there other, you know, sort of allocation decisions that I could make to maybe underweight that exposure a little bit? So um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think advisors in general are still gun shy at allocating internationally. I visited with uh, Cambria's Med Faber on this topic just a, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think it, a lot of advisors and investors are in the in the mindset that if you have bet on anything other than U.S. over the past decade plus, you have underperformed. Now, I think most rational people expect that to reverse at some point, but that's tough to go against that grain when every year, you know, this is going to be the year for international stocks. This is going to be the year for emerging markets. They're undervalued. And year after year, the U.S. keeps chugging along. So, uh, I, you know, this is a tough one. I thought it was interesting that, you know, here 52 percent thought U.S. equities would have the best returns in 2022. I think that speaks to the mindset that that I've heard. Uh, just it's tough to, to go away from that, even though we know at some point that'll uh, that'll flip. So, so Tom, let's get into some of these uh, ETF topics. And th this first one I have, I guess, does still tie into the markets. Uh, but, but the way people play these is increasingly through ETFs. The question was, what will be the dominant themes of 2022? Give us the results on this one. Yeah, so we gave people four four themes to pick from, Nate, and they had to pick one. And so disruptive technology, energy, blockchain, slash DeFi, and then crypto. And this was, you know, quite frankly, a little bit surprising. And, it, and I want to tie it back to, you know, the results as it relates to some of these uh, elements of worry. Energy at 31.3% was the most dominant theme that this group of investors picked, followed by disruptive technology at 25.7% followed by blockchain slash uh, decentralized finance, 22.2%. And then, and then you know, the laggard, although, you know, plenty of interest here as we get into some other questions, crypto at 20.8%. So 
Um, you know, really quickly, my read here, Nate, is that investors are certainly, as they told us, very concerned about inflation. And I think that some of the performance that and, and the ways that that's manifested in portfolios and, and ultimately where some of the performances lied, um, you know, is specifically in 2021, was th- through some of the energy complex. And so certainly they're looking looking there and look for that theme to continue into 2022. What, what was your read on these results? I agree with that. I mean, I think more investors are looking at sectors like energy or, or financials or even healthcare as more of a, a value play. And then to your point, with the concerns around inflation, that makes sense to me. The disruptive tech and, and the blockchain and the crypto, probably a lot of carryover still from uh, last year. Now, disruptive tech, if we look at ETFs like ARC's lineup of ETFs. Obviously, those have been challenged, but uh, I, I think that's a category where there's always going to be a lot of interest around that. And the hope for achieving high rates of uh, return moving forward, investors are going to look at disruptive tech. Uh, but blockchain and crypto just aren't going anywhere. And, and on that note, Tom, one of the other questions So on this topic was the respondents were asked, do you own cryptocurrency or crypto-related ETFs? I've got to tell you that this was uh, actually a higher percentage than I was uh, expecting. What did you think of that one? Yeah, well, I'll give you the results, Nate, and you've got some thoughts here. So, uh, yes, through a crypto wallet, nearly 25% of respondents answered that way, 24.8%. Yes, through a trust, well, like GBTC, 7.1%. Or yes, through a crypto ETF, almost 9%, 8.8, or no, 59.3. So yes was was over 40% and no was slightly under 60%. And I think where you're going with that is that you were a little bit surprised uh, that, that the proportion of folks who had some exposure, be it through a wallet, through a trust, through a crypto ETF was, was quite high. Um, thoughts there? I was shocked by that. And maybe that speaks to you have much more forward thinking advisors attending the ETF trends and ETF database uh, events. Uh, I I cannot believe that percentage. Now, I I will say for the nearly 60 percent who don't own crypto, they were also asked why they haven't ventured into this area. And I'm going to steal your thunder on this one, Tom. Over 50 percent said that it was because they don't understand it enough, which is something you and I have talked about a lot, right? This uh, education gap that's out there. Well, that's just it. And, and actually, you know, I, I have to give a big shout out to our friends at Investopedia because like the whole ethos of Investopedia has been on uh, democratizing literacy of finance. And, and you know, I have a history tying back to, you know, actually starting my career in Investopedia and, and they have grown a, an exceptional resource. And the whole team there is just, um, laser focus on exactly chipping away at that, um, you know, this, this phenomenon of, of not understanding crypto across all elements of the investable world. And so what I would really hope, and I think that, you know, doing more events like this with folks like Investopedia and others who are, are leading the way on, on crypto literacy is to, for that to come down. It, it, it would be great for a larger swath of the community to understand it well enough to make a decision about whether it makes sense in their portfolio or not. And I think that that's happening at the advisor level, it's happening at the institutional level, it's happening at the retail level. But you're right, there's still just, um, you know, this, this, there were early days in the understanding of um, not only the technology, but the wide swath of coins that exist, their application. There's a whole host of reasons why, you know, a lot of folks can, can endeavor to educate the investable world a lot more about this. But certainly that's right now a big impediment. 
Um, you know, obviously the prospect of more regulation came in as a reason why people didn't own crypto, 15% of respondents. Uh, I don't trust brokers or exchanges was 14.5%. Interestingly, Nate, and I know this ties a little bit into that, that Bitcoin survey that you referenced in the preamble, but I'm waiting for a spot Bitcoin ETF was 11.6%. So there's certainly a pent-up demand for a spot product in the U.S. market. And then also worried about security, uh, 7.3%. So there's a host of reasons, but you know the lion's share of, of respondents, why they're not investing in crypto, over 50% because they just don't understand the space well enough. Tom, we are running a little short on time, but I do want to mention that Bitwise ETF Trends 2022 Benchmark Survey of Financial Advisors' Attitudes Towards Crypto Assets would definitely encourage everyone to check this out. It's like 12 pages long, but it's full of great information. Um, I'll just quickly ask you about the results of one key question, which is, if all options were on the table, what would be your preferred way to invest in crypto? And the top answer from advisors was an ETF, even more so than investing in crypto directly, uh, though, though that is gaining interest compared to past surveys. But ETF was number one. What did you think of that? Well, Nate, we've been doing the survey for a number of years with our friends at Bitwise who have been you know, real leaders in, in evangelizing the space. And so this, this has actually been quite consistent amongst the advisor community. And I think that the reasoning why that is is also quite consistent. And, and you as an advisor may be able to speak to this to me uh, or to, to the audience as well. But, you know, it, it fits into your workflow, all of the rebalancing, allocation, all of the ways in which you're managing all of your other assets to bring that into one central spot from a workflow, from a custodial perspective, from a communication with your client perspective. Um, it makes a lot of sense to own it within an ETF wrapper, which has, has proven to be so versatile. So nearly 60% of advisors in the 2022 survey said that was their preferred way of gaining exposure here, followed by a huge drop down to direct ownership of individual coins at just over 20%. So it's, it's by far and away the preferred method for advisors to get access here. But maybe, you know, as we close out, Nate, and I know we're running a little late, um, but any quick thoughts from yourself? No, I think everybody knows where I stand on a, a Bitcoin ETF, and it does come down to accessibility. And going back to the prior survey question and some of the reasons why people are not investing in crypto, that you know, lack of re regulation and lack of trust, uh, you know, I think all of that comes back into the ETF wrapper and that if you have a regulated investment vehicle and it can be held at your existing financial services firm, there is that element of regulation and, and trust. And so, uh, again, I think that makes sense. Now, moving forward, I do expect that to evolve because there are firms like OnRamp Invest out there that are building the, the rails to allow people to invest directly in crypto. That innovation is going to continue to happen. And so I expect more advisors to head down the path towards directly owning crypto. But uh, again, the ETF is a nice mousetrap. So uh, no, it doesn't surprise me. Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. J just to uh, uh, confirm, the ETF Trends Investopedia Symposium is still available online, right? By demand? It absolutely is at etftrends.com under the webcast tab, Nate. Any, anyone can um, you know consume that content, be it a retail investor, individual um financial advisor institution. So it, it's there and it'll be there for a long time. So if you want to drill more into this data, uh, that's where you'll find it. So thanks very much, Nate. I appreciate the time as always. Yep. Great stuff as always, Tom. Thank you. That was thanks. Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. 
We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. My next guest is Rich Powers, head of ETF and index product management at Vanguard, who currently offers 82 ETFs, over $2 trillion invested here in the U.S. Rich is now on the line with me from Pennsylvania. Rich, always enjoy connecting. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me back. All right, so let me start by offering a few stats from Vanguard's uh, 2021. These are pretty remarkable. Over 325 billion dollars in ETF inflows. That shattered the previous annual mark for a single ETF issuer, which was somewhere around 200 billion. Vanguard had six of the top 10 most popular ETFs last year, including the top two. You also had one of the top ETF launches last year with a Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF, ticker VUSB. And then, as I mentioned, Vanguard's U.S. ETF assets are now over $2 trillion, which, which I have to tell you, Rich, that's equal to total industry assets at the end of 2014, <laughs> just for a nice stat for you. But uh, talk a little bit about the year Vanguard had last year. Nate, when you kind of rattle off all those stats, it's uh, it's quite humbling. Uh, and, and, and as you know, our... Our objective isn't isn't cash flows, right? It's to serve investors really well, but certainly cash flows are a really good measuring stick as to how we're doing that. And um, you know, I, I, I think you can point to a couple of things that would explain why we've enjoyed success in the last year, or last few years, and it's our low cost offer. I mean, that's always been part of who we are, but you know, we have leadership and expense ratio and total cost of ownership across the majority of our ETF lineup. Our funds track really well, so investors know they're going to buy a total market index fund. They're going to get the return of the total market. And I think the Vanguard brand is, is a powerful one. Right? People know that what we stand for and that we're a mutual organization there where our interests are aligned with theirs, and, and we try to return value to them in a variety of forms. Uh, so that, I, I think there's no confusion there. You know, Maybe two other stats, Nate, that I, I'm, I'm really proud of in terms of uh, what we were able to accomplish. You know, we've got 82 ETFs. 77 of them enjoy positive flows in 2021. So that, that tells me something that, you know, the, the wide array of products we're, uh, we offer meet a wide array of investor preferences, and uh, we're, we're doing well there. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the last stat I'll just share is 46 of the 82 ETFs in our lineup received a billion dollars or more in cash flow. So not only are, like, are we widely resonating across our lineup, but in a meaningful way for large clients who are allocating on behalf of individual investors. When you mention those 77 ETFs with positive inflows, one area in particular I'm curious about 
is your bond ETF lineup. So obviously stocks had a tremendous uh, year last year, right? The S&P 500 was up 28% or so. So it makes sense that stock ETFs would have a great year. But I was looking, Vanguard also had five of the top 10 most popular bond ETFs in terms of inflows last year. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the top new ETFs of 2021, the VUSB, the Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF. Did that surprise you at all, just the continued interest in bond ETFs given uh, the interest rate environment and, and the talk around inflation. And I guess talk more about Vanguard's commitment to the bond ETF space. Yeah, I, you know, one of the most gratifying things that we've seen in terms of investor behavior and cash flows is that they're finding their way to really broadly diversified core asset allocation ETFs, be it a total bond market fund or total international bond on the fixed income side on, on equity. We've talked about total stock and our S&P 500 in the past. So I think that's really important. Um, you know, I, I think what, what this, uh, the success of fixed income ETFs in the industry at large tells you is that uh, we are still in the very early stages of fixed income ETF adoption. I think 2020 was the record year for fixed income ETF cash flows. Last year nearly matched it. And that's kind of mind-blowing when you think about the rate environment we're in, where uh, bonds aren't offering much in the way of yield. And I think when you kind of try to connect the dots here, what that tells you is that investors look at fixed income ETFs as an incredible tool in their toolkit that maybe hasn't gotten as much use in the past, past, but 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 will in the future. And then and then when it comes to our, our aspirations and our activities in fixed income, you know, we're we're really optimistic and bullish on fixed income ETF uh, adoption into the future. Uh, we continue to build out our lineup there. If you just look at the you know, last five or six ETFs that we've launched, uh, half of them have been fixed income ETFs. Uh, as we, we we've had gaps in our lineup and. You know, if I'm looking at our research portfolio in the years ahead as to what areas we're going to explore to build our lineup out, fixed income certainly has a, a large place in that research portfolio. Going back to Vanguard's ETF flows overall last year, that $325 billion plus, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas had a uh, an interesting stat that while ETFs currently account for about 24% of Vanguard's assets, they were 92% of your net flows in 2021. And he also said that only about $13 billion was investors moving from the mutual fund share classes to the uh, ETF share classes. Is there anything to take away here? I, I mean, clearly this is good for your ETF lineup, but does that cause you any concern on the uh, mutual fund side? I think what the, the, that stat kind of speaks to is this uh, significant move and adoption by individual investors and, and advisors who want to index client portfolio assets or their own assets, that the ETF is the uh, uh, preferred structure there uh, for any number of reasons, right? Is it the flexibility in terms of when you, you know, put money into the into the market, uh, given the time of day? Is it the cost side? Is it the ability to avoid commissions or ticket charges? Uh, certainly ETFs have advantages there. Rich, before we move on, just looking more broadly, ETFs took in over $900 billion last year. So that obliterated 2020's record of over $500 billion. We, of course, had a record number of launches. Uh, you look at total U.S. ETF industry assets, now over $7 trillion. We, we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but did anything in particular stand out to you last year as you looked at the industry overall? Yeah, I think it, as much as we, we talked about as much as the, the conversation was about some of the shinier object products that were either launched or were getting some interest, uh, what you saw is by and large investors using the low-cost, broadly diversified portfolios in a significant way. So, uh, you know, I, I was, we were thrilled to see that 
uh, happening uh, from from a, a marketplace adoption standpoint. Uh, you know, I, I think the other kind of interesting thing that that happened was pretty significant adoption of international equity ETFs in the year. Right, I think international equity has been somewhat unloved in terms of how investors asset allocate and the performance. Partly, I think attributable to performance, uh, but you see, see, saw a meaningful uptick in international equity allocations in 2021. Uh, certainly aligns with our forecast around international markets having uh, a brighter potential return future, uh, given where valuations are in the U.S. versus international. And so I think those are kind of the two things. The, the adoption of broad market funds continues despite the narrative out in the marketplace and the, the move into international equity. All right. With our remaining time, I have a few fun topics for you. These might be uh, more fun for me than you. We'll, we'll see. But I, I do know this first one is right up your uh, alley, which is ETF fees. You were talking about Vanguard's leadership and expense ratio. It's certainly tough not to talk fees when uh, when, when discussing Vanguard. So I checked yesterday. You, you know I love my stats. The average Vanguard ETF expense ratio is nine basis points. And the weighted average expense ratio is, this is hard to believe, less than six basis points. But even with those numbers, Vanguard is still out here chopping fees. I mean, just in December, you reported fee reductions in nine fixed income ETFs. Uh, I also saw these comments recently from your uh, CEO, Tim Buckley, where uh, he said Vanguard would cut $1 billion from its fund fees by 2025. That's after cutting $140 million in fees last year. Just talk a little bit about uh, Vanguard's fee philosophy. It's amazing. I think what Tim's comments allude to is that we're simply built differently than every other asset management firm in the industry. You know, the Vanguard group is owned by the funds and ETFs in our lineup, which uh, by virtue of that are owned by the individuals and advisors and institutions who own the funds. And so that differentiates us in the marketplace because all of our competitors are either publicly traded or privately owned. And so they're, they're built to generate profits for those owners, be it the private or public owners. Whereas for us, we're built to generate profits on behalf of our shareholders. And we're able to return those profits to shareholders in the form of better services, right? Enhancing our website, offering additional services, or by lowering fees and what we're doing now is just a continuation of what we've always done and what really sets Vanguard apart, which is you can count on us to continue to find ways to return value to shareholders in the form of lower costs, be it in target date funds, be it in ETFs. So obviously those low fees from Vanguard, and certainly there are other issuers out there as well that have very low-cost index-based ETFs and, and mutual funds. I, I want to ask you about this interesting article from MarketWatch last week titled, The SEC's Next Regulatory Target Could Be Index Providers. This created a, a little buzz, and there was a lot here, but one of the areas covered was the potential systemic risks created by indexing, which I know you and I have covered this in the past, but uh, Rich, this topic just won't go away. And when you think about the massive inflows we, we've been discussing here today, there's this narrative that money is just blindly flowing into the S&P 500 and other broad indices, and nobody's paying attention to the underlying company fundamentals. Now, obviously, I know where you stand on this overall, but for people who are concerned out there, which they are out there, how would you respond to that line of thinking? Yeah, I think the first place to start is indexing. The rise of indexing has been unequivocally great for investors, right? That means they've, they've achieved better outcomes from a return standpoint. They have more money in their pockets rather than the pockets of the asset managers. Uh, and so for, for those reasons, indexing has been great. 
think the stat that I, I recently saw was something like half of all pooled fund assets are in an index strategy. And, and as we know, like index strategies come in very many different forms. But let's just call it half of the assets are in, in indexing, which is an incredible stat. And, and it's not surprising that some will glom onto that and say, wow, that, that should be concerning. But, but when you start to kind of drill down and, and dig into the layers a little bit, uh, it becomes a little, little uh, more clear why uh, the rise of indexing is not problematic in terms of market structure. So about 15% of all uh, investable assets in the market are held in some type of indexing strategy. So I, I talked before about pooled funds, 15% of the market is in indexing when you throw in hedge funds, individual investors, insurance accounts. So 15% is not that large of a number. It gets even smaller when you think about the amount of trading that you can tie directly to an index strategy. About 5% of all trading happens uh, in the market driven by some type of indexing strategy. So if there's this notion of indexing is somehow disproportionately impacting price discovery or valuations, it's really hard to make that connection given the fact that 95% of the trading that happens, which leads to price discovery and valuations, uh, come, comes from something other than indexing. Uh, and then maybe the, Nate, the last point I'll offer to you, um, there's still more work to do here. I think there's more room for indexing to grow. There's something like $6.5 trillion globally that's invested in products that charge 1% or more. My guess here is that many of those clients are not getting the outcomes that they had hoped for. And so we think there's more room for us to bring indexing to more and more investors. Is there a point at which there is too much indexing out there? Is there a natural cap to how much of the market can be indexed before it does become a problem in your eyes? Gosh, I'm not sure what a number looks like, but but if we use the starting point, and I think the most relevant data point that I shared earlier around what you would look at is how much in the market activity is driven by indexing. Something materially bigger than five percent would 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 have to be would, would probably be where a, a conversation needs to start. But you know, we've been at that five percent number for a number of years, which simply tells you that a lot of money is still in the hands of investors who take something other than a, a passive approach. All right, just a couple minutes left. I'm going to tee you up with one last uh, fun topic. So you, you may or may not know this, but one of my 2022 ETF predictions is that the Vanguard share class patent will become a hot topic of conversation. So I, I, I could be wrong here, Rich, as I understand it, that patent expires in 2023. Now, I know that you're not on the legal side of things. You're not a Vanguard attorney. Uh, but are you able to speak at all to what happens next year? Like, can anyone pursue this structure once the patent is up? Is this something that's on your radar? Uh, is there more to all this than, than what I'm stating here? Yeah, Nate, your facts are correct. Our patent expires in 2023. And so at that point, uh, any other asset management firms could uh, pursue uh, a multi-share class ETF offering. Uh, they, they can pursue it, but they'll be pursuing it with the SEC through the exemptive relief process, right? So take you back a couple of years, the SEC went through a, a pretty ar arduous effort with the industry to create a little bit more clarity and uh, straight-through processing with respect to how products are launched and, and brought to marketplace. And they created what's called the ETF rule, which effectively says, here's an easy pathway for you to bring products to market versus historically what they've done, which is every product that ever came to market got individualized exemptive relief. That could be painful many years in the making. And so uh, other firms who now will have access to considering launching multi-share class ETFs 
will not be able to use that easy pass. They'll need to go through the exemptive relief process and engage with the SEC. In the end, uh, you know, no impact to Vanguard. Our, our, the benefits we've got from launching multi-share class ETFs, you know, call it 70 of our products, um, you know, accrue early on in those products lifecycle where we're able to launch them with diversified portfolios, low cost tracking really early on. But over time, uh, those benefits uh, diminish and kind of equalize over time. And so, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what other firms kind of consider this, but uh, it's not a slam dunk in terms of how they have to go through the regulatory process to to bring uh, any products they might want to to market. No, I appreciate the comments there. I think it would be much more interesting if we see other companies try to pursue the Vanguard mutual ownership structure <laughs> rather than the uh, the share class structure. That could be interesting from a, a competitive dynamic standpoint. Not sure we're ever going to uh, see that. But uh, Rich, always appreciate the time. Fantastic perspective. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks so much, Nate. That was Rich Powers, head of ETF and index product management at Vanguard. The universe of publicly traded pure play digital transformation and blockchain companies has grown significantly in both size and revenues over the last few years. Access the company's driving blockchain innovation with the Vanek Digital Transformation ETF, ticker DAPP, your link to the blockchain. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. And investors should consider the fund's objective, risk, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a prospectus, call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Aisha Hunt, founder of Kelly Hunt PLLC, which is a law firm specializing in helping asset managers launch, manage, and grow ETFs. They also handle uh, mutual funds, interval funds, and other investment products. And Aisha's past experience includes working with some of the largest asset managers in the country, Dodge & Cox, uh, Wells Fargo, She also served as general counsel for both Alps and Vidant Financial, and she's now joining me via phone. Aisha, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. All right. So I have to tell you, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning here. I'm not going to wait around. We have to jump right in and talk Bitcoin ETFs. So as I understand it, you represented Vidant Investment Advisory, who's a sub-advisor on the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker BTF. Obviously, we did see some progress last year with the first Bitcoin futures ETFs coming to market, but there's still no spot Bitcoin ETF. Now, nearly nine years after the first spot filing, uh, as a matter of fact, the SEC just rejected another filing last week. What has been your take on all this, and and where do you think the SEC currently stands on a spot ETF? Well, Nate, I'm actually working on a regulatory path to launch a spot Bitcoin ETF, and my work has been based on really listening to SEC Chairman Gensler and SEC staff 
and their concerns around price manipulation on foreign uh, cryptocurrency uh, markets, as well as um, you know various safeguards that need to be in place, such as surveillance agreements. I think it's going to be challenging for um, ETF issuers to continue to propose the same ETF structure. I think a lot of ETF issuers have done a phenomenal job um, with educational efforts with the SEC staff. I think it's important to build on that those educational efforts, but to also propose uh, a more creative structure that more sufficiently addresses the SEC's concerns. So I think it's uh, to be continued, and I think we will get um, a spot Bitcoin ETF over the finish line. Have you followed any of the uh, other angles that some of the uh, other ETF issuers out there have pursued? So I'll give you an example. Grayscale, who is is going down this path of an APA violation, do, do you think that's something that the SEC will seriously consider? I mean, how much legal wherewithal is behind something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's really an unprecedented strategy to um, publicly, uh, you know, address the SEC in, in a manner that um, uh, is tantamount to um, challenging them with respect to compliance with applicable laws. I think that there's a path where you can, you know, spend time with the SEC staff and really get them comfortable with a more creative structure that specifically addresses the concerns I mentioned with respect to, you know, uh, price manipulation on foreign um, currency exchanges and, you know, other safeguards um, that should be in place. And so I don't think that um, the the approach of um, really uh, asking the SEC to consider whether or not they're in compliance with applicable law is, is the optimal approach. So do you think this ultimately comes down to the regulatory framework in place at the crypto exchanges? I mean, I, I feel like to a large degree, ETF issuers' hands are tied. That until the SEC just gets more comfortable with that that regulation in place at crypto exchanges, it really doesn't matter what ETF issuers do. What, what do you think about that? You know, I want my firm Kelly Hunt to be known for relentless creativity to help managers bring novel products to market. And so, what I've been doing is really thinking through various financial product precedents um, in the financial services universe as well as learning from various foreign jurisdictions. I think that um, attorneys should try to be a little bit more creative about the structures that are being proposed. I think it's difficult to continue to repeatedly propose the same structure um, when that structure has been you know, assessed from the SEC's perspective as having deficiencies with respect to you know, safeguards and other concerns that the SEC staff has articulated. So I really think it's important to you know, spot on address the concerns, and I don't think you can continue to address those concerns by proposing the same product structure. Um, I think it really requires more creativity um, from the, the legal um, you know, service providers. So just to be clear, before we move on here, I mean, how optimistic are you that a spot Bitcoin ETF will ultimately get approved at some point? I'm fairly optimistic. I think that the SEC staff um, is comfortable with Bitcoin um, being in an underlying portfolio. I think it's just prior to lending the 40 Act wrapper with various investor protections, there really needs to be additional safeguards in place. And so I think it's important to create spot Bitcoin um, you know, exposure in a way that's a little bit more creative than what's currently being proposed. All right, so let's touch on some of the other major topics impacting the ETF industry right now. Mutual fund ETF conversions. That's clearly a, a big topic right now. We saw the first conversions in 2021. I think most industry observers expect a significant uptick this year. How cumbersome is that from a legal standpoint? 
you know, the real issue is how secret is your secret sauce, right? Because that's the first decision you have to make is whether you're willing to disclose your portfolio holdings on a daily basis. And to the extent you feel your investment strategy um, is such that you really don't want to um, disclose your portfolio holdings on a daily basis. You want to shield that portfolio. Um, you really need to make the determination um, of whether you're going to leverage one of the models that allows for shielding your portfolio. And when you're due diligence those models, you want to make sure that those models are actually viable and that the plumbing has been worked out to support those models. I think, you know, the other um, aspects of a, a mutual fund to ETF conversion um, include, you know, considering whether you're going to do a direct conversion or merger um, and, you know, to what extent do you need shareholder approval um, in addition to board approval and how how easy would it be to obtain shareholder approval through a proxy solicitation process. I think other you know, potential steps that um, uh, can be a little challenging for some funds um, is really adjusting the mutual funds portfolio to be compliant with the conditions of any applicable exemptive relief, consolidating share classes to accommodate the typical single class structure of ETFs, and arranging for mutual fund shareholders to either designate or establish um, brokerage accounts. I think that those those steps can be um, uh, a little challenging if they're not, you know, really fleshed out and um, potential, um, you know, roadblocks aren't identified in advance so that you can proactively and aggressively address those issues at the forefront of the um, process. And just out of curiosity, is your firm seeing an uptick in demand here, just a rise in inbound inquiries to, to get mutual fund ETF conversions accomplished? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm getting calls from multi-hundred billion dollar mutual fund managers that are looking at converting um, or you know, merging existing mutual fund products into ETF um, shells to accomplish uh, what is equivalent to a conversion. And it's been certainly a significant uptick. I launched my firm in September, and I've been filming those calls ever since. <laughs> so I do think that there's a significant interest. And in addition to you know the large um, you know, mutual fund families, I think we're also seeing uh, a number of um, boutique um, mutual fund shops looking at either converting product or um, building out new ETF product suites. So definitely uh, unprecedented demand right now for um, you know understanding the process for conversions or mergers, and it's been a really exciting time uh, to be a part of that. Sort of on a similar topic, just in terms of this this uptick in demand, I think really just for the ETF wrapper in general, um, there's been a lot of discussion around the rise of independent ETF issuers. Now, I, I think this started following the 2019 ETF rule, right? That really got things going by leveling the playing field. And then I also think the rise of white label issuers has helped reduce costs and reduce headaches involved with launching an ETF. But I'm curious from your perspective, with a lot of new players getting involved in the marketplace, are you seeing issuers trying to take shortcuts on the legal side? You, you know, maybe assume they know more than they do. And, and if so, what are some of the implications of that? Yeah, I think it's critical to start with a knowledgeable law firm that can help you navigate the ETF ecosystem. It's very different from, you know, other um financial services spaces, uh, different from, you know, mutual fund space. Um, it's important to understand how you're going to enter into the ETF uh, industry. Um, a number of uh, ETF issuers have uh, landed into the industry in different ways, and in retrospect, they wish they had really thought through their various options. And um, we've seen, you know, a number of folks enter through being an index provider and engaging a white-label investment advisor. We've seen folks use turnkey platforms as well as just launching standalone ETF families. I think, you know, for uh, larger managers that are 
really committed to um, internally building out uh, their infrastructure and adding the headcount. Um, you know, launching a standalone ETF family is definitely a viable option. I think most managers um, have a stronger preference for not adding the headcount and not building internally um, the infrastructure required, but rather using a turnkey platform where all of the services that you need to launch an ETF are, are bundled in that platform. And I think that, you know, to accommodate cutting-edge ETF strategies, we really are um, seeing the next wave of ETF service providers and established ETF service providers that are really willing to disrupt their own business models. You know, the industry is light on deep ETF expertise during a time of unprecedented demand right now, and we really need to reimagine how we help establish ETF managers as well as new entrants um, launch ETFs. And I'm really excited that in the coming months I'll be launching um, a, a platform with these strategic partners to really um, provide a turnkey solution that I believe leverages, you know, industry-leading service providers and, and will provide a, um, really a path that uh, is, is well well thought out and due diligence that most ETF managers or interns could consider um, in terms of launching in a cost-effective, efficient manner. Just a couple minutes left here, but on that note, you know, I, I spend a lot of time discussing the growth of ETFs on this podcast, right? The record inflows, record launches, all of the innovation occurring. And clearly we see that carry over to other parts of the ETF ecosystem, market makers, authorized participants, uh, the white label providers, which we just touched on. And we, we, we noted earlier how you are seeing this uptick and in, in growth and demand around mutual fund to ETF conversions. I, I'm just curious on the legal side, I, I'm always fascinated when I visit with different people within the ETF ecosystem, like how do you differentiate on the legal side, when you're going to market, how, how do you uh, articulate your value proposition and, and try to stand out from the crowd? Because again, we're going to see a lot more demand. We are seeing a lot more demand come into the ETF marketplace. So there's going to be much greater demand for your services. How do you differentiate there? So, you know, I think a lot of ETF service providers do a great job, including law firms, of pitching you know, their services. And then when um, ETF managers start onboarding or engaging those services, they're often told, you know, what the service providers, what the law firms can't do or what they can't do. And what I want to do is really bring that re relentless creativity that I mentioned and flexibility to the market to be able to help managers, you know, be the first to launch certain novel products and to really work with them in a way that, um, complements their business model. So for some of my clients, I provide traditional legal services. For other clients, I serve as external general counsel. Maybe they just want you know, outside you know, general counsel to be able to help um, them work through the product development initiative, not necessarily to just execute on a product development initiative. And so I'm trying to be very flexible and working with managers in a way that meets them where they are and, and really um, addresses their wants and needs based on their business model. I also um, am very proud that my law firm is the first women and minority-owned asset management um, law firm that offers 40 Act legal services. And, um, which is interesting, my firm is the first firm that will be um, accepting cryptocurrency as payment. And, and obviously that's limited to certain cryptocurrency, but I think that's an exciting way to support the asset class. 100%. Such a fantastic story, Aisha. Really enjoyed hearing your perspective this week. We may need to have you on uh, periodically to update listeners on the status of a Bitcoin ETF, but uh, re really enjoy this. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Nate, for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Aisha Hunt, founder of Kelly Hunt PLLC. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Dave Pletcha, Global Head of Fixed Income at DFA. We're going to talk interest rates, uh, inflation, 
everything going on in the fixed income markets. And of course, we'll also talk DFA bond ETFs. And then Ritholtz's Josh Brown and Advisor Circle's Matt Middleton will give us a sneak preview of the upcoming Future Proof Festival. Until then, have a great week, everyone.